0: Hi, and welcome to the Dress Channel. We are so glad you're joining us. God has a place and a purpose for you, and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much He loves you. Thanks for stopping by, and enjoy the message. All right, so good morning. So a quick side note, we actually don't have anything on the screen today. We had a little snafu, so I do apologize. We're having a little bit of technical problems, but... Our notes are in our app, so if you have our Trailside app, you can use that, find the notes. If you need to take a quick second, you can go to, I think it's called My Church app, and then it'll locate Trailside for you, and you can hop in right through there. Um, all right, so we're going to have a little test this morning, okay? Are we good for that? Who are my Deep South people who are just like, been here all my life, love biscuits and gravy, I'm all about it, a few, like four, that's it? All right, well, this test is going to go real poorly. Um <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an Ohio boy, but I'm, I've lived here my whole life, so it is what it is. I want to see how well this actually translates. I did a little bit of this test earlier with my favorite Southerner, uh, Nathan Wilkie, who's an um, elder at our church, and, and it didn't go as well as I'd hoped. So we're going to see what happens, all right? See if you can finish the phrase, she was madder than a wet. Yeah. There we go. All right. Thank you. We got a couple of those. All right. Uh, how about this? I'm, this is one of my favorites. I'm busier than a one-legged man in a... Yeah, we can say butt in church. It's okay. Butt kicking contest. Right. All right. Good. Good. Here we go. Don't let the screen door hit you. Okay. I feel better about that one. Yep. Yep. Um, I, this one I haven't heard, but it, it's my new favorite, and I'm going to start using it. So if maybe you can finish it for me. Um, his cornbread... There it is. Yeah, one person. Marcus knew it. Um, his cornbread ain't done in the middle. I just like that's like the best. I can just hear someone's grandma saying that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Followed by bless his, yeah, bless, bless your heart. Love being a Southern. And then there's one more that I'm going to use as a terrible transition into what we're talking about today. And it's that there's more than one way to skin a cat. That went pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Nathan has his own southern language, and that's okay. We'll talk about that another day. Um, there's more than one way to skin a cat. So how do we take that cultural remark and put it in with what Jesus says in John 14, 6? Because this is what he says, okay? It's a very famous verse. You probably know it. If you've been in church, there's a good chance you can finish it. If not, your life is about to get destroyed and then built back up. But he says, so Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we're doing this series. We're just starting it called Doubt Your Doubts. And what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to teach some very apologetics-driven ideas about faith and who Jesus is. And so if you're skeptical of faith or if you have someone who is very skeptical, bring them. This is going to be a great opportunity for that. Um, But we're going to talk about the very first thing, which is this idea of can you skin a different cat a bunch of ways? Because Jesus very clearly says in John 14 that you can't. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. That's it. No one goes to the Father except through me. But what does that even mean? Like when you consider your life right now, like what does that actually mean to you? If if it is just Jesus, that should stir you one way, and if it's not, we probably should just go ahead and start reading like Elvis lyrics or something in church, right? Because it's gonna bring us just as close. But but if if it is real, if, if he is right, then what does that actually mean for us? What would it look like for us to doubt doubt instead of doubt? Faith. I did some research um, because, you know, it's it's really popular right now, I guess right now and has been for a while, to have our own different definitions of Jesus, right? And say, well, you know, this is what I think Jesus is. And I've said it a few times, but with uh, everyone's favorite, Oprah, was hanging out with a pastor, Joel Osteen, and said, why do you not talk about sin in church? And he goes, well, I just don't want, you know, people to have a bad day at church. I don't want to be sad. And she goes, well, I know my Jesus would never... And I thought, well, isn't that an interesting statement? My Jesus. Like the possessive, like Jesus is our little friend we carry with us in a box. I'm like, here's my Jesus. Put him next to your Jesus. Let's see what happens. Right? I'm like, my Jesus would never not let me have a million dollars. Well, I've messed up there. I've missed something, right? Or Jesus has, one of the two. But... But, but what, what happens when we begin to make it my Jesus instead of it be the Jesus? I read this article um, off the Huffington Post, which, okay, I know. <laughs> article is used loosely. But it was from a guy who was a pastor. who's an ordained, I think he was a Lutheran minister. And this was a quote. The whole article was really um, weird. But this is a quote that he said, Uh, He was talking about there's many ways to Jesus, many ways to God. And he said, you can believe as I did that Jesus is the only way to God and so vigorously defend this belief with anyone who would question it. But believing this will not make one iota of difference. I know this from my own experience. (laughs) Great. Oh, well, this guy in the Huffington Post has decided, guys, you can love Jesus really well. It doesn't matter. So we should all just close up and go out, right? You're all still sitting. Yeah, because here's the deal: if the validity of Jesus being Jesus is based on me as the authority of salvation, um, then what's to say me uh, being I don't know an Ohio State fan in order to get to Jesus isn't just as rational? Now we'll say the angels sing a little louder in the horseshoe, but <laughs> oh, I know you can already hear it happening. Already hear it happening. But but it's the same concept, right? It's to say, like, well, why not? Why don't I just say, well, if there's many pathways to Jesus, then me being a college football fan should get me closer to him, right? Because it's the same mountain, just a different path. Or me being a... Well, we you know you can't be a Michigan fan to go to heaven, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I got, I got some Michigan friends out here, you know. They'll fight me later about it. <clears throat> um, no. No, but... but but listen, if heaven is this apex of the mountain that we believe that it is, it doesn't matter the path. It can be whatever you want it to be, which is what we say when we agree with things like, well, my Jesus would never duh. and then fill in the blank. That means in a couple weeks, this coming Saturday, praise God who all blessings flow, we can watch football and that can be a pathway to Jesus. That's, that's what that same mentality takes. I know that's a little bit of a, you know, like hyperbole, but, but I think it stands. As Pam Beasley said in the first season of The Office, I feel God in this chilies tonight. So who's to say a blooming onion doesn't get you there, right? Yeah. But this is why something called the burden of proof is so important. And this is something that, um, it's, a, it's a legal term, but they actually use it within theological discussion and debate. Pardon me, my mouth was a little dry. I didn't know how the joke of Pam Beasley was going to go. So, um, <laughs> but, but here's how the burden of proof works. It's that the one who brings the charges must present enough substantial evidence against an assumed truth that the burden of proving it shift to the other party. So it's basically like you have to have enough evidence against something in someone's viewpoint or statement that it now makes them have to prove what they think actually happened. So you shift what's called the burden of proof. You show me why I'm wrong. That's how that works. And so here's how the burden of proof works. It it must begin with the person who brings a claim to the dispute. I promise this is important. So if you disagree with something, then you have to bring the proof in order to switch it around, to turn the tables. The party that does not carry the burden of proof instead carries a benefit of their assumption being correct. So there has to be an assumption within the conversation. And they're presumed to be correct until that burden shifts after the presentation of evidence. So in other words, to make that really clear, you can't just say it, you gotta have a reason. There has to be an active assumption of what is true and what is false in two parties that disagree and then go against each other with evidence, not feelings, in order to turn the tables into who is right and who is wrong. You guys follow me on that? I'm not a lawyer. I know that's surprising. So, you know, I want to make sure that was really clear. So here's what we're going to operate off of this morning. I'm going to give you a lot of information, but we're going to operate off of the assumption that God is real and has revealed himself to the world in some capacity. Okay, just, just God is real. That's it. So this is not a fight for, is Jesus real? This is like that there is a creator of some kind, and then there's a lot of different ways up the mountain. So that's how we're going to start this morning. So here's what I want to do. I want want to point out to to convince you, gosh, let me start over. I'm not setting out to convince you uh, that Jesus is God and that you need to become a Christian today because that's not my job. My job is to present the truth and watch the Holy Spirit work within you, hopefully. Okay, let's be real clear about that. Um, what I want to do is if you are not a believer, if you're struggling with some of your doubt or, or feelings of faith, I, I want to I show you, I want, I want you to hear the opportunity to find conclusive evidence that Jesus' claim about himself is exactly who he says he is. Is that fair? Do you guys follow that? Yeah. And if you are a believer, I want to give you tools in order to disciple and lead people because you are capable of discipling and leading people. Here's another southern term for you. That's the pastor's job. <laughs> if you follow Jesus, it is not the pastor's job. My job is not to save all of your friends and family. I don't, I, I'm not the Holy Spirit. You're not either. But we, as a collective group of believers, are set in order to show people truth and point them toward the gospel and then watch the Holy Spirit work within them. That's how this works. Because if you or I can be the agent of change in someone's life, then we can also take it away as much as we can give it. And, and we're not the agent of change in people's lives. So, so if you are a believer, I want you to be able to not be scared of theology when a Jehovah's Witness or Mormon walks in your front door, right? Or when your friend who's not a Christian at all says things like, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. So that's my goal today. So I'm going to read a little bit. We're going to start in John 14. I know we just finished John, but you know, whatever, it's still in the, in the Bible, so it, it's important. There we go. Somebody laughed through that. I was going to be bad if no one did. I was going to turn around and walk off the stage. Um, Here's what's happening in John 14. Let me, what I call, build the house, give some context to what's happening here. So this is just after the Last Supper, just before the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is going to be uh, turned against by um, (laughs) Judas. This is his name, sorry. Uh, And he's about to go to the cross. And so he's having this conversation with his disciples. Um, and notice it's important, too. He's speaking to his disciples alone, right? He's not speaking to the crowds in general. He's talking to his people here. And this is what he says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place. Would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? Um, I talked to Aiden about doing the song, um, My Big, Big House, but it just didn't work out this morning. So, um Some of you guys got that. Others of you didn't have to live through that part, Um, and that's like me, so thank you. Um, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, doubting Thomas, perfect, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then this is the, the meat of today. And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us a Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? So the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. So whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son." For if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So this is how this conversation literally starts out. Jesus has just told all of his best friends, like, hey, I'm going to get killed. I'm going to be dead soon. Right? And then Peter famously says, I'll go to death with you. Then he goes, Peter, no, you're going to actually deny me three times. And they get in this big quabble. Jesus calls him Satan, which is always a great way to start a friendship. And then he starts this next chapter out and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and also believe in me. Now, people have used that and a bad understanding of it and said, well, that's Jesus saying that he's not God. Right? Jesus is easily saying, like, believe in God and then believe in me. But if you actually go back and study the original language, which is what Jesus spoke in. And if you don't believe that's important, um, I want you to do this. I want you to tell your spouse or your best friend how much you love them. Throw it into Google Translate into Ukrainian and then try to tell them what it means, okay? It's kind of what we're getting at with that. So original language is pretty important. But the literal translation is Jesus saying this. He says, you disciples trust in God as you pertain to this moment and the future, talking about the cross. And he says, in just the way you trust in God, you also trust in me. So he's saying, like, from this point on, trust in what's about to happen, that God hasn't left, and trust that I am the same. You can trust in me the exact same as you trust in God because we are one. We are united. Pretty important thing. And so Thomas asks this question, well, how can we know the way to get to where you're going? You guys ever felt like this where, like, you have this friend who's super spiritual, like, loves Jesus really well, bad things don't happen, and you're like, how do I get your life? Like, how do I get what you want? I, just tell me the way. Give me the formula. I need steps one through nine, right? I'll probably skip three to six, because that's why I'm in this trouble anyways. <laughs> you guys ever been there before? you like, if I could just take these steps. This is the same thing Thomas does. Like That's why, that's why the disciples are so dang relatable to us, guys. That's why we should find commonality with guys like Peter, who's like, I'll never leave. And then I don't know him, and cusses out a 13-year-old girl about it, right? Like, that's why we should find commonality with these people, because these are the questions we would ask Jesus too. Thomas looks at you and says, how, how can I know where you're going? How do I, I don't, I don't know the way. How am I supposed to know the way? And, and it demonstrates this, this honesty and this frustration that's so common to us today. Like, how do we get there? We all know we want heaven, right? I mean, when I was like eight, I knew I wanted heaven. I just thought it looked a little different. I thought it was like you walk in, there's candy everywhere, right? I can play video games whenever I want. And and as you get older, we still want that. It just switches a little bit. We talk about family and being reunited with people that we love. And then we hear about Jesus. And and Jesus' claim in the midst of this, this question that Thomas has doesn't really answer it very well. He just says, I am the way, the truth, the life. That's it. That's the whole conversation. But what we learn in those three claims is everything for us. When we talk about doubting your doubt and doubting who Jesus is or knowing who Jesus is, that statement is incredibly huge because he says three very big statements about him in two word blocks. The first is this he says, I am the way. And the way is personal, Jesus is personal. I remember when I was a kid, I used to think, like, I grew up Catholic, and so there was this incredible reverence for God, which I think is probably lacking a little bit nowadays, you know. We kind of came through the Jesus is my homeboy stage, which I was always a bit uncomfortable with, because um, all I knew about, no, no mind, no. Um, but I always thought God sat on, like, this cloud and threw lightning bolts at us when we were bad, you know. Like, if I lied to my mom, lightning bolt, it's going to have a bad day. Like I would stub my toe, be like, I'm sorry, God. Kind of karma theology, like I like to call it. But what Jesus is, is he's personal. He doesn't claim to merely know the way. He says that he is the way. Like Jesus is not blazing a trail to eternity and hoping that you'll just kind of follow him. He's saying, I am the pathway of how we get there. Come with me. I will go with you. It's not like if I'm not outdoorsman, I'm about to make that incredibly clear, but um, it's not like if you go hiking and you pick a trail and you follow the red dots everywhere, you know, that works, right? In hiking, I should have asked somebody, but uh, it's not just a trail that you go take. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the way to the Father, because it's, it's personal He's saying I, I, it's not a formula to follow. If it was a formula, then you would be capable of doing it, right? You would go, can okay, I need my hiking boots. Can okay, I need my water. I need my gun because you got to shoot snakes, uh, all of them. They all should die. Um, I'm just scared of them, guys. That's all it is, okay? Some of y'all are like, now that's not very Christian-like. I just, they freak me out, all of them. Um, but he's not a formula to follow like we can take steps one through nine and then like we'll be there the same way he is. He's saying that it comes through him, that he is the way, just him. So he makes that exclusive but personal claim, and he invites us to come with him. In fact, this is where we get like Matthew 11, one of, one of my most favorite areas of Scripture. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I I woke up this morning, and some of you parents can probably know what I'm talking about here, and I actually threw it on social media because, you know, sometimes you want to look like you're a really good Christian, so I did that. Um, But I woke up, I know, I don't know why people come here either. Um, But I, I woke up, and I put my foot down to get up, and I like, kind of stepped on something that was soft. And I realized it was my son. <laughs> and I said, buddy, what are you, what are you doing? It's, it's like 6.30. You're snoozing pretty hard. And he looked at me, and he goes, oh, Daddy, I'm sorry. I was, I was scared. I was like, okay. And, and, I, and I thought about what that really meant. And, and the thing was, like, when my son was scared, he came to his father's side for peace. And for rest. Now, he wouldn't just come to the side of my bed if I wasn't there, right? Like, if we were out of town and he was staying, like, he would, he would go to a place of safety and security, and so as Jesus says, I'm the way, he offers that personal touch, and he's like, you're with me. Come within me. Follow me. We're not going to cut trees down. He goes, it's through me that you get to where you're going. I am the pathway, it's not a, a recipe for success. It's a relationship for your helplessness and my helplessness and our brokenness. But, but I think the most common theology people have is the formula, right? Like we say, like, all right, if I do enough good, right? If I'm nice to people, right? If I don't like curse that dude out on Woodruff Road or Highway 25, for those of you who hate the big city, <laughs> right, keep Walmart out. See you there every Friday. Um, never mind. That's another conversation, um, right? Like if I if I pray and read my Bible, if I give to my church, if I serve, like if I do those things, I'm really nice to my neighbor, then God will be like, hey, you know, your good outweighs your bad. Come on in heaven. That's not what it is. Jesus says He is the way. It is a personal touch. It is not Jesus and you. It is Jesus and nothing. And so when He says I'm the way, it is a personal relationship for our helplessness. is not a recipe for you to follow so that you can be good enough. I've got a a spoiler alert for you. None of us are good enough. Nobody. None of us. In fact, the Old Testament says our best are like bloody rags before God. That's what it looks like. And I'm not going to go any deeper, but if you want to, there's a lot more context than that. So he says, I am the way. It's not us doing good enough or trying hard enough or having enough merit. It's that Jesus is the pathway. He is not burning the path. He is the path. Next he says is the truth. I am the truth. And when Jesus says that, it's because he is exclusive. He is the only one who has a full and unmarred knowledge of who the Father is. So he is the only one capable of blazing the path for us to get there. No one else has ever lived sinlessly. No one else has ever come down and and did what he did. No one else has died on a cross and resurrected. No one else has resurrected from death. See, Jesus, it says in Hebrews, he knew no sin, or in Romans, became sin so that you wouldn't have to deal with your sin. No one else can make that claim. It's this big word called propitiation. Propitiation. That's your SAT word if you want to go impress your Baptist friend. Propitiation, substitution. Thought that'd be funnier. It wasn't. Um, <laughs> then he says, I'm the life. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And the life is unique. Jesus doesn't exhibit, it's not this arrogance that he has. The only possible deduction we can make is that he is indeed the sole means of access to the Father. He says, I'm the life. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the only son who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Because they're in perfect relationship. It is only through Jesus. So Jesus' claim is personal, exclusive, and unique. And so the question for us as we talk about this this morning is, well, that's great, but what does that actually mean for other religions? Like, why can we say that Christianity has got it right? Because that's kind of a seemingly arrogant thing in today's world, right? Like in the, in the PC culture, it, it's not I'm right and you're wrong. It's I'm right in my way, you're right in your way, they're right in their way, and we're all going to get along and be happy, right? There's some things I'm not okay with that fact on, okay? Like, I'm not okay with my wife being my wife and also kind of your wife, just because you think she is. Not going to happen. I'm not okay with my bed being your bed, kind of, as well. See, absolute truth, this idea of what is truth and what isn't, is really good until it applies to something that costs us something. So the big question is, well, what do other religions claim? There's four fundamental issues I want to hit real quick and then we'll close, that every faith seeks to address. Every systematic theology addresses these four things. The first is origin. Where did all this come from? Oh, look, we have a note. How about that? Where did all this come from? The second is meaning. What is the the purpose of humanity? Why are we all here? Why are we not acting just like lions in the jungle? The third is morality. What is moral and how do we define it? And the fourth is this, destiny. What is the end game of life? Now, every single faith has built answers to one of those four questions. But here's why I want to point to you. There's only one faith that will lead you to one answer, and that is Jesus being exactly who he says he is. So origin, where did all this come from? Number one, without a creator, there is no what? Creation. Creation. It's a, one of the oldest conversations ever. I've never seen a painting that just came into being, right? Like, do you think this just happened? Come on. <laughs> there it is. I knew that get us back. Um, yeah. We are a creation by a creator. The creation is not identical to the creator. Two separate things. And that's a created order that God is God, and God created man, and man is man. And, and what this does, guys, is it gives us a moral point of reference. It's like here's the beginning, here's where we started. And here's why that's important, because only only monotheistic religions can explain this. Like man, man was created with a moral code. It was placed in us at creation as moral beings, as, as human beings. And we're not capable of being on the same level as God. Here's the truth. We are never going to esteem ourselves into being a deity, right? Anybody have a major issue with that? If you do, then I want you um, to maybe go talk to someone. We we can chat a little bit later. Um, No, we don't have the ability to esteem ourselves to God. We will never rule over each other. And yet, many, many faith systems would disagree with that. In fact, that's how the whole fall of creation happened, was that Satan, a created being, attempted to be like God. And then when that failed, what happened? Adam and Eve are walking in the garden, hanging out, right? Enjoying life and their full freedom. And Satan comes in and says, hey, that, that tree of good and evil. That really, that's okay. You can eat from that. And Eve goes, no, I'm not supposed to. And what is Satan's remark? He goes, well, God knows that if you eat it, you will become what? Like him. So they do. Adam eats. Adam blames his wife. They sell on some fig leaves, and we have all kinds of beautiful art. We have this brokenness. But that eliminates a lot of these faith ideas. Like, for instance, Buddhism, there is no creator. It's actually kind of a non-theism. It's just an enlightenment stage you get to. Or Hinduism. Every birth is based on a rebirth from a previous life. Therefore, how do you get from the first birth to the second to whatever birth you're on now? Like it has to have a genesis there. It doesn't work. Or Mormonism. This is what you will not learn from the guys riding their bikes with their name tags on. They won't tell you this right off the bat, okay? Trust me. That by works and faith, you can become a god of your own planet. Much like the God of this earth who was man and was a good enough Mormon that God chose him to be the God of our planet, and here we are. That's real theology, guys. Okay? I'm not making fun of you. It is by faith. They would say salvation is by faith or all you can do and then faith of God. So it's all as good stuff you can do, and then God's like, oh, you just need this little bit right there. Okay, now you're good enough. Or humanism and naturalism. There is no creator... But if there's no creator, there's no right and wrong. And if there's no right and wrong, then we can do whatever we want. Because origin is important. So here's what solid origin does. It gets rid of all those, and it continues to point toward other major monotheistic religions like Islam, uh, Judaism, and Christianity. So the second meaning, what is the purpose of humanity? That God does not call us to be good enough people. He, he instead, if you're a follower of Jesus, and Luke 10 clarifies what it is, he says he calls us to love him well with all we are and then love people. Luke 10, 27 says he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and all your mind, and then love your neighbor. Listen, you can't love your neighbor fully if you're not loving Jesus first, because then all that is is you hoping you love them well enough to like, you know that Sean guy? I really like him. We should hang out with him and take him on a Disney cruise, which, mom, listen, anyone can. Um, No, because there's still selfishness in that. You're still getting something. God says, love me with all that you have, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then that will naturally progress you into a place where you love your neighbor well. I love this quote from Ravi Zacharias. who's an apologist and one of the smartest men ever. He said, only something greater than pleasure can provide true meaning. See, like momentary pleasure, the reason it falls short is because it points to something greater, but it's not the fullness of what it is we're supposed to get. And we see this everywhere we look, guys. How many people do you see filling their lives with anything and everything just trying to accomplish some pleasure in hopes that will fulfill them? Because meaning matters. But Jesus said that he came to give us more than momentary joy. He said he came to give us life to the full. In John 10.10, he says, The thief comes to destroy and kill, but I came that they might have life and have it what? Abundantly. Abundantly. So the third, number three is morality. Morality. What is moral, and how do we define it? This is actually a really key point. This is how mere Christianity begins. This is how C.S. Lewis begins his seeking of who God is. So, how do we define what is good and what is evil? Now, some people would tell you that humanity at its core is good, right? Like, everybody's good. You know what? No, you want to know the best way to determine that everybody is not good? Take $100,000 and throw it on a highway, see what happens. Y'all, I'm stopping. I'm not gonna fight, well, I might fight somebody, I don't know, but. (laughs) Because we're not at our core good. But morality, that code, it grows out of the character of God, the reason you're not gonna go up to someone and punch them in the face right now is because you're not a wild animal. But you can act within your anger and your brokenness to do so if it just gets bad enough. But see, philosophy would say this, is a great question of philosophy. If moral law, or I'm sorry, is moral law either over and above you, or is it subject to you? Like, is moral code based on an authority over you, or is it based on what you want yourself? But see, these these answers don't come if we don't have a a system, if we don't understand our meaning, if we don't understand where we came from and why it matters. Nothing matters. If it's an over and above answer, then where does morality come from? How do we get to that point? Do we go to politics? I'm not making this a political statement, but as Donald Trump, you're now authority of morality? Or Hillary Clinton, whatever, I don't care. All sides are messed up. But guys, here's what we do. We seek things like politics and make them our saviors. You want to know why our country is falling apart? Because we've made politics the Savior instead of Jesus. Like, come on. Gun laws and wealth, all those things are not going to fix the problem. The problem is fixed by Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. That's it. Because he has a distinct moral code that's been placed in you and as he regenerates and moves your heart and fixes it and makes it more toward him, you won't want to do things like take advantage of other people and hurt other people and do terrible things to other people because God says love him first and then you'll be able to love your neighbor. The problem of our country and of our world is not legislating things. It is meaning and knowing Jesus and loving him to be exactly who he says he is. And, guys, we have to stop that. I'm so tired of the church pointing people toward politics instead of toward Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Your morality is not subject to you either. It's subject to Jesus, it's subject to God who says that he is eternal and infinite and unchanging and omnipotent and loving and caring and graceful and forgiving and wrathful and vengeful and full of judgment in the right context as well as he is caring for you and he holds you in his hand and calls you a royal diadem and says you are valuable and because of that we have morality and hope that this isn't all that we have. And that cannot be removed from his character because God is not going to get mad at you one day and kick you out in the trash. It cannot be removed from his character. And the fourth is this, his destiny. What is the end game? Where are we trying to get to? Christianity says very clearly the, the man's express purpose is to know God and enjoy him forever. The chief of man. It is based on his death and his resurrection, his way, his pathway. Jesus says, all who follow me, all who follow me, will have a gift that is not able to be taken from them. That's what I love about Romans 8, one of my most favorite chapters. If you want good biblical theology about how salvation works, go to Romans 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, None. If you're in Jesus, like nothing's going to remove you from that. But here's the key. If you're in Jesus, not if you're in morality, not if you're in, if you're in Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, is grace alone, not works. It's not what you do. It's what Jesus did and it's still doing. And so John 14, it says, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come again and take you to myself. And that... Where I am, you may be also. Here's the beauty of that statement. When Thomas asked, he said, God, how will we know how to get there? Jesus says, you don't have to know how to get there. I'm going to go prepare it, and then I'm going to come, and I'm going to take you to it. I'm going to bring you there with me because you're valuable, because you matter. And then Jesus says, for I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Church, Jesus is the only the only way. Following God and Christianity is the only faith that is true and that shows all four fundamental issues that faith seeks to address of origin and meaning and morality and destiny. It's the only thing that gives us hope. And so with those four truths come four very quick ones. The first is this, that you can be forgiven and made new. You can Whatever's in your heart, whatever's in your life, you can, you can be forgiven. The second is you can be reconciled to God and made right. By his work, not by yours. You can't prove yourself good enough for God. He just loves you. Third is you can be in eternity with him forever. And the fourth, you can trust in Jesus' I am statements forever. When he says he is the way the truth, and the life. He is incapable of failing you, even when we fail him. I'll close with this. Second Peter 1 says this, because I know, listen, I know in a world full of cynicism and skepticism and doubt, it can be easy to say that none of this matters. Like, oh, that sounds like a great story, Pastor. Like, great, yeah, one day we'll be in eternity and there'll be tons of barbecue ribs for everybody and we'll party and it'll be awesome. Or if you don't like ribs, broccoli, I don't know. Um. (laughs) But here's the deal. If this was just a fun story, like if the Bible was a group of myths and things that like were just kind of fun to talk about, there wouldn't be any power in it. Like when, when my son reads the Berenstain Bear books when he was younger, I wasn't like, wow, I want to become a Berenstain Bear. I want to be a follower of the Berenstain Bears because there's no power in it. But when you follow Jesus, when you love Him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, when you have forgiveness and you have justification and you know that this world is not all the hope you have, that there's something in it after it that's so much better, when things happen in this world and when things are taking you from you in this world, they don't matter as much because you can't take any of this with you anyways and because your hope isn't in right now. It's an eternity with him. And so 2 Peter 1 says this, for we do not follow cleverly devised myths, When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But instead, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Church, when Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, we will find commonality with that statement. That we will be eyewitnesses to his majesty. And So my encouragement to you this morning is, if you need Jesus, find him love to talk to you about that. And if you're doubting you have questions, let this be a, an introduction to you in that. Knowing that he hasn't forgotten you. That he is exactly who he says he is. The unchanging savior who died on the cross defeated death, was resurrected and has created a place for you and is already there and will come again to bring you to him. Let me pray. God you're good and I thank you that you are exactly who you say you are. Thank you that we can trust that, that as we, as we, worship, as we worship you this morning, as we close church, that, that this wouldn't just be a thing we do on Sundays, but this would be a, a life change for us every day. God, that we would know our prayers don't go unanswered, that they don't fall on deaf ears, that, that you have made us higher than the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, that you put purpose in us. You created us to have hope. And that the very breaking down of our world and our our bodies and our lives scream for eternity. That this is not our home, that this is not the fullness of what you promised us, but instead that that you've told us when this life is hard that you will meet us and walk through it with us, that you will not forgive us, you will not forsake us, and that when this life is over that our hope is not gone because then it is fulfilled while we are in heaven and eternity with you. And that nothing can take that promise away. God, if this was a group of fun stories or if it was a group of things that made us feel a little bit better for a few hours, then there'd be no power and hope in it. And so, God, my prayer, my heart, is that we would find hope in it. That we would find purpose in it. That as you say, you are the way and the truth and the life. That it wouldn't be a thing where we act like it's not important or that it's just one of the pathways, but instead it would be a place that we find power, that we find truth, that we find hope and comfort, and peace. And Lord, as we give these next few minutes to you, if it's all we have, Lord, I pray that it would be life-changing and life-giving. That would be a moment where we are reminded of your goodness and your grace would be a moment where we know that you haven't forgotten us no matter the midst of our struggle no matter we're dealing with sickness and disease or hardship financial trouble or ruin or relationship being broken and destroyed but instead father that we would find you in the point of our breaking knowing that you haven't forgotten us that you haven't left us and that you are exactly who you say you are, Jesus, God of the universe, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and you feel closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person or help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, check us out online at trailside.church or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we can't wait to see you again soon.